Welcome back to Policy, Guns and Money. We're excited to bring you new analysis each week on the most pressing global issues and developments. To kick off this year, we bring you a deep dive into QAnon, something we regularly hear about in the media, with increased prominence since the 6th of January riots at the Capitol in the United States. But what is QAnon? Jake Wallace speaks to Ariel Bogle about its origins, how it translated from an online phenomenon into real-world violence, and the challenges that it creates for policymakers. Ariel, we're going to have a chat about QAnon, the Q phenomenon. What's really interesting about this is that it has this fantastical component to it, and yet there is a more sinister side that we've seen recently that has the potential to mobilize real-world, offline protest, but also violence. And uh, it's worth having a discussion about the QAnon phenomenon because it's interesting in of itself, but also because of that that phenomenon, the fact that you can mobilize large groups of people to congregate, to protest, but also you can drive the emotional sentiment to a level where it will produce real-world violent effects. So let's start with QAnon 101. What, what is it? What's it all about? And where has this emerged from? So I would say that QAnon is a pretty sprawling, all-encompassing conspiracy theory at this point. But at its core, it's this idea that there is a global elite, a cabal of people abusing children and trafficking children. And former US President Donald Trump is engaged in a secret war against this cabal. And it really began to foment around a message board where an anonymous person who would call themselves Q would post. And apparently this was a White House insider and he would deliver these, or he or she or whoever it is, would deliver these kind of rambling posts for Q adherents to decipher and drive their actions and their interpretations of that text from there. So that's really where it was at its core, but it's certainly grown since then and has come to encompass conspiracy theories about Bill Gates, about the coronavirus, about China, all kinds of things. But it does come from that core, which is very much reminiscent of ancient uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories around blood libel. It's fascinating in the way that it has been able to incorporate contemporary events within a vague, I'm, I'm going to use the word vaguely, vaguely coherent narrative, but we've had such population level stress as a result of the pandemic. Uh, it's been really interesting to see how that has driven uh, various offshoots of the QAnon narrative. And even here in the Australian context, we've seen some protests that have kind of emerged from that phenomenon. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah, so I think QAnon, we're talking now about violence spilling over into the real world, quote unquote. But when you look actually at events inspired by QAnon, there have been acts of physical violence or incidents like this since at least 2018, if not before. And we can also look back to Pizzagate. Uh, where a man went to a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C., under the suspicion that there was a basement in this pizza parlor where Hillary Clinton and others were abusing children. Obviously, it was nonsense, but that was kind of a precursor to QAnon. It kind of starts from that core concern around or that core sort of idea of elites and pedophiles and 
that they, they need to be confronted with violence. So that was, you know, somebody going into a restaurant with a gun and QAnon adherents have sort of followed that model. There have been uh, standoffs with police at the Hoover Dam. There have been kidnappings and even alleged murders related to QAnon beliefs. So what we saw on January 6, which I think is where we're heading, the uh, riot, if you want to call it, the insurrection at the Capitol, that is probably the obviously the most significant moment where QAnon spilled over into the mainstream, but certainly there have been plenty of precursors and people warning that could happen based on past events too. So there were a number of factors that drove the events at the the Capitol, but QAnon was a feature. It was certainly a prominent feature of that riot. There were QAnon insignia visible in the in the crowd amongst the the rioters. Uh, so it, it it has been interwoven or it has converged, perhaps that's a better word for it, converged with a number of other political forces, but fringe, very much fringe political forces. And I think that's part of the danger is how these elements of the fringe, the fringe of the political spectrum converge in a way that's going to drive sentiment towards expressions of, of violence. Have we seen much of the QAnon phenomenon overlapping into Australia? It's an interesting question. I think there have been QAnon Facebook groups in Australia since at least 2018. We have so many links with the United States here. Of course, we share the same language, which makes sort of information transfer exceedingly easy. We share the same platforms, Facebook, YouTube, and there's certainly a conspiratorial ecosystem that has emerged on these platforms. It was really in 2020 that those groups started to grow and you started to see a great deal of QAnon-related content flowing through Australian Facebook groups where maybe some interests overlapped, uh, anti-vaccination Facebook groups, uh, the anti-lockdown phenomena, as much as it existed in Australia, did sort of manifest into protests in Melbourne and Sydney at the very least. It sort of flowed through and I think um, the mechanics of platforms like Facebook really helped uh, a few fringe figures who had been sort of floating around in the Australian conspiracy ecosystem ride QAnon into a sort of level of fame uh, because there was such a growing interest in this theory and also because people, you know, all the things we've been talking about, people are at home, they're living a very disrupted life, they may be under new types of stress and these figures offered a kind of compelling narrative and community to cling on to. And really, I think that's something we need to talk about with QAnon too. For people who are participating in it, it's a kind of uh, game. I mean, I'm certainly not the first person to say this. There's been a lot of good writing about this, but you're looking for clues in pop culture. It's kind of like an ultimate world-building game. And so it does really offer people a whole new sort of way to look at the world, uh, a nice, if not a disturbing explanation of why there is evil in the world and just a, something fun to do on the internet in many cases um, as far as that goes. Given the, the health stress and economic strain that the pandemic has produced, there are significant challenges to our sense-making. People want to understand why they're experiencing this, this stress, why we are so susceptible to uh, you know, a pandemic that has global reach and a neat 
narrative that encapsulates a number of features of the QAnon phenomena has has certainly been a, a kind of li- life raft that some have turned to th- through this through this time. Now, social media is obviously uh, a factor here in that it's a conduit for, for this narrative and the networks that social media provides allow for that overlap as you as you've described between groups networks in the US and groups and networks here uh, in Australia the platforms themselves have have obviously tried to um, respond to this phenomenon as it has become increasingly prolific as it has mobilized um, into you know, offline protest with the potential for for violence so facebook has has banned facebook and obviously instagram as a subsidiary has banned um, QAnon-related groups. Um, Twitter removed something like 70,000 QAnon accounts back in, in January. Do you think that'll stem the, the flow or is, is it a narrative that will persist in other spaces? The question of whether deplatforming works is a really interesting one. And a lot of people that study de-radicalization, they do think it works. So if you take down these Facebook groups, it will be more difficult for them to find new followers or to sort of intrigue people enough into participating in those conversations. So we'll see. I guess we'll see if the the great deplatforming, as some people call it, uh, will work. But for the people that are already there who are dedicated, it's certainly caused a flow into new spaces. So we can look at Parler, of course, which was the Uh, app that's mostly offline at this point. It got removed from the Apple and Google App Store because of the kind of violent rhetoric which was taking place on there, particularly related to the January 6th riot. There's also Telegram, but there are a lot of different platforms now that I can see people in these communities uh, pushing their followers towards. uh, There's kind of a cat and mouse game there between the big platforms and people who are QAnon adherents. And I think it is somewhat part of the game now. They kind of enjoy this back and forth with the platforms. One group goes down, they set up another, they create backup accounts, they post their videos not on YouTube but on BitChute, which is another kind of video platform that I guess stands against any kind of content moderation. You know, there's there's something going on there. I guess we'll see how it plays out. But it will. I think it will be difficult for QAnon to draw more people in if they don't have a huge presence on platforms like Facebook. It's really fascinating to get a sense of how these online mobilizations can drive real world uh, experiences of political protest and uh, obviously concerning to see that that protest can tip in, into violence. There are a, a host of really complex challenges here for for platforms and potentially for policymakers because the platforms are having to make the decisions but what do we want to do in the policy space around these kinds of grassroots phenomenon that are, are driving really mass large-scale mobilization ariel how, how do you think qanon has overlapped into the political realm are there manifestations that that you can point to Yes, absolutely. I mean, in the last US election, there were quite a few candidates in the, in the United States that professed QAnon followership. Uh, I don't know how you want to put it. Uh, they were QAnon believers or they at least used phrases and tropes and referred to QAnon as part of their campaigns. Perhaps most notoriously, a woman that made it to Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has for years uh, dabbled in conspiracy theories and QAnon content. She has harassed 
uh, survivors of the Parkland school shooting. She has called George Soros a Nazi. This is a woman now in US Congress. And there is something here for the Republican Party to decide whether it wants that type of person to be part of its fold. Certainly she's made it to Congress. She's on a number of, she's likely to be on a number of committees. And I, I know there's a big fight there whether the Republican Party will allow her to continue. But this is something uh, we perhaps need to be wary of in Australia too. Uh, for example, this week, Craig Kelly, uh, an Australian politician, appeared on the podcast of Pete Evans, the notorious uh, once chef, now conspiracy theorist, if we want to put it that way, who has dabbled in QAnon content himself, shared QAnon memes and phrases. And so I suppose we need to decide whether that kind of thing is acceptable in Australia and consider the dangers of, of mainstreaming or allowing QAnon sentiment to be mainstreamed in this way, thanks to a sort of convergence of politics and media. Well, it's been fascinating to get a better understanding of how the QAnon phenomena has mobilized online, but overlapped into the political sphere and into, into real world protest and unfortunately, unfortunately violence. So Ariel, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Jake. It's been an interesting time in Russian politics with the arrest of Putin critic and opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, and the resulting protests across Russia notably the most widespread demonstrations in the country since the 90s. Anastasia Kapetis speaks with Russia expert and AU News visiting fellow Kyle Wilson about Putin's strategy in dealing with Navalny and how resilient the protests will prove to be in challenging Putin's power. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a great pleasure. One of the things I want to get into straight away for our audience which is to get into your Russian language expertise. Can you tell us what it has been the reaction in Russia, in Russian language media, in Russian language social media, to the events of the last two weeks, to Navalny's going back to Russia, his arrest and the protests? It's a very complex picture because Russia is not China. And while television is very carefully controlled by the Kremlin, by you know, the present ruling elite in Russia, um, there is in Russia uh, a spectrum of media. And um, there are, there's a radio station, for instance, which is Moscow-based, which is genuinely liberal in its outlook. And so um, uh, I don't know what it's, how many listeners it has, probably some million out of 120 million. Then uh, there, are, there are numerous blogs and sites which uh, would simply be squashed in China they would be shut down. Why uh, Putin and the Kremlin haven't closed all these sites down is really very interesting. Then, of course, you've got social media, over which at this stage the Kremlin has very limited control. And that in itself is of great interest. So, obviously, the state-run and controlled media have taken their um, instructions from the presidential administration to present Navalny as a traitor, uh, as a quizzling, a creature of the CIA and the State Department, uh, and a thoroughly bad lot. Um, a man who is undermining um, Russia's well-being. So that's the state-controlled media. We've even had in cinema now, before screenings of films in cinemas, there are three to five minute segments of propaganda produced by the Kremlin. The gist of which is, do you want Navalny? or do you want stability? 
Um, and really yes. the theme that runs through, the, the, the way the Kremlin is treating Navalny is, was summed up really by one of Putin's predecessors, a senior KGB officer, who once wrote that democracy takes from people everything that the dictator has given them. A roof over their heads, food to eat, a job and stability, and offers them, in return, freedom. And that very probably is the view of Vladimir Putin about what mm. democracy is all about. So, so that is the media line. As you'd expect, discredit Navalny, try to destroy him in, um, you know, in the minds of the populace. But of course, as you'd expect, um, the, the liberal media are taking a very different view of this indeed, because they sense that this is an inflectional movement in Russian history. This is a highly dramatic moment in Russian history. We've seen it before. Individuals of great courage and moral fortitude putting their life on the line in the name of a more humane, if you like, the Russians might say, a more civilized Russia, a less corrupt Russia, summed up very well by one of the demonstrators who was interviewed, and I think the... Um, the interview was replayed briefly, or it was a soundbite in the Australian media. We're sick of the lawlessness. We're sick of the corruption. We're sick of being lied to. We want change. So that message is there in the media for those Russians who want mm -hmm. to hear it. So do you see the politics of Navalny growing in Russia? Um, just this morning, uh, Navalny supporters have said, please don't come out um, and, and protest over the next few weeks. We're going to retreat, go back, plan, and then come out and protest again in the spring and summer around Juma elections. What, what is the long-term strategy here for Navalny, his supporters, and the movement? It's clear that the long-term strategy is revolutionary change. And Navalny and his supporters, without wanting to go into too much detail in history, are part of a Russian tradition that goes back to 1825. Uh, Russia being... Uh, historically an autocracy, an absolutist monarchy. And the first attempts made to, as it were, to liberalize and humanize Russia took place in 1825. Uh, there were various attempts in the period since, in the 1860s, the 1905 revolution, the 1917 revolution, and then, of course, Gorbachev's Piristroika, which was an attempt to reform a system which had shown itself to be sclerotic. And it seems to me that we've reached just such a point again now because the system which Putin has put in place, which is essentially a restitution of the traditional Russian autocracy, defined by high concentration of power in the hands of one man, in effect the Tsar, the sacralization of the state, whereby the state individuals exist to serve the state, not the other way around. And three, the state and its personification, the ruler, is above the law. There is a law. Okay? So that particular system has been resurrected, reinstituted by Putin. The key word, we know it from the KGB handbooks, which we used to train Putin, is control. You control the populace. That's the crucial word. Inevitably, such a system is inflexible. It doesn't adapt well to change. And we know that Putin is very fond of uh, various sayings. One of his sayings, of which he's very fond, is 
for my friends everything, for my enemies the law. Well, a, famous, a kind of principle for autocrats and conservatives is, was defined by Giuseppe de Lampedusa in his novel The Leopard, very well known in Russia. In order that things remain the same, things must change. So Putin is failing to change. He has taken a decision clearly that he will use the knout, that is the Russian whip, and the saber to suppress this effort to reform the system. That is probably a fateful and potentially fatal decision for him because ultimately it will not work. The question is, how long will it take for this pressure, which has been created by Putin himself? I mean, Navalny mm. is a Putin creation and the Navalny movement is a Putin creation because they haven't been flexible. How long will it take for this particular movement to really gain momentum? could take quite some years. And the other point, it's, it's inherent in your question, is that Navalny and his movement, as you've called it, are clearly intelligent and skillful, and they're a formidable political opponent for Putin. And it would appear at this stage that Putin doesn't really know how skillfully to neutralize them. What he's doing, as we know, is he'll try to decapitate them take out Navalny by putting him in prison, take out his entourage, the mm. people, the crucial people who are helping Navalny, either by putting them in prison, prison or forcing them into exile, which is the traditional Russian technique of dealing with opponents. But what of the 10, 15, 20% of the population who are disillusioned and alienated from this now sclerotic system? How will they act. Um, will they come out on the streets in September? At this stage, we just don't know. But what we can say is that Navalny and his group's strategies have proved highly effective and that he's proving a formidable opponent for Putin. And while he remains in the country and remains in jail, he will be formidable and a danger. I think Putin ultimately would like to. He can't kill him now. That option is off the table. I think Putin would like to force him into exile. Can I just track back to the issue of control and the issue of media control? So why can't the regime control social media in the way that China does, for example, and will they try to? Is this something that they would do next to try and control, uh, build the kind of fire, censorship firewall that, that China has that Russia doesn't have at the moment? Well, it seems to me that I can't put myself into the collective head of Vladimir Putin and the very small group of former intelligence officers. They're virtually all men, and they're virtually all former intelligence officers, and they're virtually all from St. Petersburg, who sit around and plan their strategies. I mean, I presume the actual process is that position papers of policy options are put to Putin, and Putin himself decides how they will shift. It's absolutely clear that Putin has seen it in his interests and as a way of supporting the system that he has put in place that there should be a safety valve. That is, there should be a small section of the media which can be presented as genuinely representing an opposition so that Putin can argue, we have pluralism in Russia. We have our variant of democracy. Uh, these people are allowed to express their views. 
Putin would never say, this is not China, but the implication is, this is not China. The, the head of the most liberal radio station in Russia, which is called Echo of Moscow, the, the editor, was once, he knows Putin very well. And he was once asked, why does Putin allow your radio station to continue to broadcast when, for instance, senior members of the church have called time and again that you be closed down because what you say um, is unpatriotic? This man said, Putin finds us useful. I had a phone call from Vladimir Putin asking how we knew that Russian soldiers who had died in eastern Ukraine were being secretly buried in Pskov. And I said to Vladimir Putin, I know because I had my correspondent down there and she was beaten up by the locals. Putin has the problem of an autocrat. He's surrounded by sycophants who are worried about giving him bad news. He's probably cluey enough still to realize that it's useful to him to have people who will give him bad news. So that radio station, Echa Moskvi, remains, and it's actually one of the best sources of commentary on what's happening in Russia that you can find. I'll mention one other thing for your listeners. If they really want excellent commentary on what is happening in Russia today and on Putin's reactions, Putin's responses, Putin's policies, they can do no better than go to the website of the Carnegie Center in Moscow, which is staffed by Russians. It has commentaries in excellent English. And there you will find, as I say, some of the most insightful and courageous commentary on what is actually happening in Russia today and what Putin's responses to this mounting crisis are. Carnegie Center, Moscow. Thanks for those tips, Carl. It's very, very useful. A couple of things about ex- the external issues here. One, one, does Putin have anything to fear from uh, reactions from the EU, from from the US? Sanctions packages are being discussed. Both the, the EU and Washington are kind of taking their time. They've kind of said, well, we're going to take our time, in our own time, respond to Navalny uh, as well. And what are the implications here for Australia? Does Australia have a, a role to play? Is it, will it be affected by the politics flowing out of the Navalny case? On the first issue, if responses from other countries to what is happening in Russia begin to affect personally that group of people on whom Putin relies for his support, I would have thought in those circumstances, yes. Uh, it could be a genuine concern for him. You see, on the one hand, of course, it's helpful to Putin when he can present foreign responses to what's happening in Russia as an attack on Russia because 24-7, the Russian populace is subjected to a mantra which is this. Russia is different. Russia is morally superior. Russia is the victim of ingratitude and injustice. Russia is under attack. Russia must defend itself. That sums up, you know, the subtext of what Russians hear on their state-run media 24-7. And Putin can say, look, what did I tell you? The West wants to enslave us. The West wants to do us down. I stand between you and the West. Your option is Navalny or me and stability. So, in other words, Western reactions can be presented by Putin, can be useful to Putin. On the other hand, if, uh, when we consider the Russian elite, Uh, By the way, one of Mr. Putin's um, close supporters has called them the new nobility. We are the new nobility. Um, Of course, they have houses in Europe. Their children are being educated in places like Great Britain and Sweden. Their bank accounts are in Switzerland. Uh, 
Um, they have villas in Italy. They have yachts moored in Mediterranean ports. If there was some kind of cohesive response from what we'll call, for convenience sake, the West, to attack the interests of those people, freezing their bank accounts, for mm. instance, then I think Putin would have cause to be very worried. As regards Australia, look, I think it's very important that we don't exaggerate what our influence might be. I think we have virtually no influence. This is a battle to be fought by the Russians within Russia. Obviously, we need to consider our options very carefully. We need to box cleverly, as with the Chinese. We need to weigh what we say and weigh what we do. Uh, ultimately, it seems to me that you know, we can have very little influence. It would be desirable that there be a coalition of the willing and that countries that would like to influence what's happening in Russia coordinate their efforts. Let's hope we see that. I think the larger question is, the, the larger context has actually been summed up very well, succinctly it seems to me, by the Australian actor Rachel Griffiths, who was recently asked in an interview what her greatest fear was coming out of COVID. And she said that her greatest fear was that the best worst thing humanity has ever invented, which we call democracy, may have been irretrievably damaged by what has been happening in the United States and Europe. In a way, the great irony here is that at the very time when Putin has won, his enemies are in disarray. At this very moment of his triumph, suddenly, out of nowhere, come two unforeseen factors, completely unforeseen turns of events. One of them is COVID, and one of them is this sudden attack which he's finding very difficult to counter from this courageous man called Navalny. Thank you very much, Kyle. We'll leave it there. And um, we hope to continue our exploration into Russian politics and the Western response next week. Thank you. A lot has happened while the podcast has been on hiatus. Riots at the US Capitol, Biden's inauguration, a military coup in Myanmar, and the persistent challenge of COVID-19. Peter Jennings and Michael Shoebridge discuss these recent developments and what they will be watching closely in the year ahead. Hi, it's Peter Jennings here and welcome to 2021. Michael Shoebridge, good to see you back from holiday. How are you? I'm great, Peter. I had a disconnected break, but I did notice quite a few things happening over the time I was away. Yeah, we had this uh, thing called the uh, transition of power in, in Washington, D.C., Michael, and a, a pretty ugly end to the Trump administration, not over uh, as he's now in the battle for whether or not the Senate can impeach an American president that has already left office. But what's your take on Biden's arrival? He's, he's certainly been very busy in the first few days of his time as president. Yes, he, he got off to a fast start. And I think that was very, very deliberate, you know, signing more executive orders than any previous US president on his first day. Things like ending the US withdrawal from the Paris Climate Change Agreement, rejoining the WHO, very symbolic uh, and foreshadowed. So while the Trump tenure has ended in personal disgrace for Trump, probably a fitting end to his presidency, Biden is, I'd say he's acting fast and he's acting slowly. So the Paris Climate Change uh, Agreement and WHO are examples of the fast, 
um, some of his moves on things like China strategy are a bit slower and more thoughtful, and that's probably a welcome thing. Yes, if there is any remnant of bipartisanship in Washington, D.C. these days, it does seem to be over China, Michael, and uh, I, I get the sense that uh, the Biden team are looking to emphasise more continuity than discontinuity, which means to say a, a harder line on China. It's difficult to escape the thought that uh, possibly the first presidential crisis that Biden is going to face is over the Straits of Taiwan. Um, I wrote for The Australian last week that we're seeing a significant increase in the amount of uh, PLA air uh, incursions into Taiwanese airspace. Two weekends ago, we had on a Saturday 13 uh, PLA aircraft flying into the southern zone of Taiwan's airspace. Then a statement from the State Department in Washington, D.C. saying to China, don't do that. And then the following day, 15 PLA aircraft flying into uh, Taiwanese airspace. So what's your thoughts on Biden and Taiwan and the overall likelihood of uh, a crisis emerging in pretty short order? Well, I think uh, what you described shows it's not just internal testing of Biden that we're seeing. This is Z very deliberately pressuring Biden early. And you look at what their foreign ministry spokespeople have been saying. They're happy to cooperate with Biden as long as he butts right out of China's internal affairs, which are defined in ways not many other people would accept, including Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong, Xinjiang and Tibet, and presumably all the waterways that they seek to control now with the Coast Guard, with its new ability to use lethal force wherever China thinks fit. So he's sending a message to Biden early, and he can't really turn back. Xi has to push hard for all those internal constituencies he has to deliver for. So I think you're right. I think the scene's really set for a crisis uh, between China and the US, and the most credible place for that is in and around Taiwan. My impression is that um, the Americans aren't for backing down either. Um, I mean, apart from a State Department press release, which was useful and said all the things you'd want it to say, uh, perhaps more usefully we have the aircraft carrier, uh, the Theodore Roosevelt, and a combat strike group of American warships exercising in the South China Sea right now. Uh, this is starting to percolate towards a full-blown crisis, isn't it? Yes, because for Biden, um, he has to be strong um, strategically and internationally. He has to show that he's willing to use American power, including American military power. You know, there's that real sense um, with a whole lot of commentators saying the US is terminally internally distracted. Well, he's going to show that America can walk and chew gum. So exercising military strength is a part of that. And then there's clear statements out of um, Blinken, his new Secretary of State, that dealing with an assertive China is about security, prosperity and values. And that means standing up for democracy. Well, of course, Taiwan is an iconic democracy in North Asia. It's interesting, Michael. I, I'm constantly surprised at the number of Australians who say, uh, look, Taiwan is not worth the fighting for, as, as though a democracy of 23 million people in Taiwan is not important. But of course, a democracy of 25 million people in Australia, well, the Americans, of course, would come to our support. There's a bit of a 
a gap in our thinking on that issue. And so far, our own government has been pretty quiet in terms of what it has said or not said with regard to the crisis that's building on the Straits. Yes, I, I think for Australia, it's it's really a matter of look at ourselves. You're right. If, if an island of 23 million people in the Indo-Pacific that's a democracy doesn't matter, then why does Australia matter? But also, Taiwan's got something Australia doesn't have. It's a high technology centre. It is the heart of semiconductor technology globally. And if technological advantage is at all relevant to power in the world, then who owns Taiwan matters too. So even if you're shamelessly, willfully blasé about protecting a bunch of democratic citizens, you should be deeply interested in the future of power from technology. All of that brings Australian interests very directly into play in Taiwan. Of course, Michael, the other big story whilst we were both on leave was the progression of the COVID virus. Uh, It seems perfectly acceptable to talk about a South African variant and a British variant. We still are not apparently allowed to say that the virus came from Wuhan in, in China. We've had the WHO uh, now send an investigation team to Wuhan. What's your views on uh, the COVID situation right now and and, um, how is Australia placed uh, going forward? Well, you're right about the WHO visit to Wuhan. Uh, A more closely stage-managed, choreographed um, enterprise is hard to imagine. They will meet nobody that they aren't meant to meet, and anyone they do meet will will say exactly what the Communist Party wants them to say. So anyone who thinks that fact-finding is going to be part of the WHO visit to Wuhan is living in a parallel universe. But turning to the virus uh, internationally... I'm I'm fully expecting, Michael, that somewhere in a dusty corner of the fish market they'll find a copy of the Stars and Stripes newspaper and perhaps an empty vial or something like that, pointing the finger back to the so-called American military. On on a piece of Norwegian smoked salmon. (laughs) I think you're right. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but it, it will be nowhere near the lab and it will be nowhere near a Chinese bat. We yes. can be sure about that. Yeah, so, um, but the future for, for the international community is even with vaccines, it's not an answer. We're going to be living in the land, the world of suppression, which is what we've seen in Australia with New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia, and now Western Australia, even as the vaccines roll out. And that's because of these new variants and the fact that most of the world will not be uh, able to be vaccinated anytime soon. Yeah, look, I fear you're right, Michael. And the thing that I've been worrying about is that if, if we see now the rapid emergence of new variants of the virus, which have different properties um, associated with them, what's there to say that there's not two, three and four more new variants that will come out that will present different challenges to how to deal with the virus? Uh, and then the other concern I have is uh, right now uh, in Africa, uh, you know, South Africa is said to be the country that's worst affected. I think the truth of the matter is it's the country that we have clearest visibility of what's actually happening internally. And, you know, the virus, on the basis of everything we've seen in the past 12 months, is simply going to work its way up through the continent. 850 million people who are not 
in the majority going to be vac- vaccinated or have access to good uh, to good healthcare. So that's that's where new variants will come from, and it'll keep disrupting vaccination programs. So, uh, and that that is the future of this. I think, Peter. I know we're almost out of time, but we can't end without mentioning the military coup uh, in our region. So Myanmar is now back in military control and Australia uh, has some things to think through uh, because we clearly have built a modest training uh, relationship with Myanmar's military. Um, So what's the path forward? Thinking not just about the easy step we might take, but what are the consequences and how should we think about this problem? So Michael, the big strategic picture here is two of 10 large consequential Southeast Asian countries now are under military control, Thailand and and Myanmar. It shows you that the region as a whole is pretty fragile. I think thinking about our interests with Myanmar, clearly what we and like-minded countries should do is try and encourage Myanmar back on the path of democracy as soon as possible. But that's not going to be helped by Australia being first with the most toughest, difficult sanctions that we can put in place or a complete cessation to military cooperation. I think we have to be pragmatic here. And pragmatism means keeping some lines of communication open. You know, I'm minded that um, there are three places where Australia has had quite tough sanctions regimes in recent years that have really worked against our long-term interests. India and, and Pakistan, when they started nuclear testing, and then Fiji after the 2006 coup, uh, which put a democracy out of uh, out of office. Now, in all of those cases, it, it put our interests with those countries back probably 10 or 15 years. The, the Indians have only really just forgiven us for the affront, as they saw it, of sanctioning them over nuclear testing. And Bainamarama took a long time um, and now that's back in a good place, but after a very long time. Arguably, yeah. Fiji's still on the journey to accept Australia's interests. And, and, and the, the absence of Australia in, in Suva for a decade effectively meant that China and uh, Russia got closer to the Fijian military. It didn't, in other words, sanctions motivated by a, a genuine concern for democracy didn't actually help Australia's position. I think in the case of Myanmar, I would be hoping our, our government would be counselling the Biden administration to be cautious too, uh, and that we go softly, softly, all with the intent to, to push Myanmar back into democracy, but not doing things which will inadvertently push them closer to the Chinese, uh, which is what hardline sanctions would, would do. So I, I would be counselling some pragmatism on that issue. Mm, well, I think you're right. I mean, Australian absence creates other opportunities, and that's that's really worth thinking about. Well, thanks very much, Peter. It's great to be back and uh, great to be part of this podcast. Good conversation, Michael. I think we'll have lots to talk about as the year goes on. Uh, Not necessarily always good news either. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to follow Aspiorg on Twitter and please let us know what you're keen to hear more about on podcasts this year.